Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website, online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. And I'm joined by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Before we dive into the show, I want to let everyone know that we hit the streets yesterday with the July print edition of The Independent. There's 20 beautiful pages of coverage of the city from The Independent's unique vantage point. Look for our papers in our red and white news boxes across the city, as well as in public libraries, independent bookstores, laundromats, social movement centers, etc. And always feel free to reach out for us if you need help finding a box or a library. That's right. Get that print edition. You can also subscribe and get home delivery of every issue by going to independent.org backslash subscribe. And now we turn to today's radio show. We have some fantastic guests lined up. In fact, we're ready to make a splash. That's right. And our first segment, we'll speak with Max Rivlin Nabler of the Hellgate website about the death of dearth of lifeguards at City Please. Pools this summer. Yeah, not the death, the dearth, the lack of lifeguards at City Pools this summer and how that's affecting ordinary New Yorkers who don't have their own rooftop pools or private gym memberships. And how did we end up with our, the new city budget we have and what will its impact be in the coming year, not only for our pools and parks but in other areas including new york for new york's one million public school students well we'll speak in our second segment with city council member shahana hanif of brooklyn she's the co-chair of the city council's progressive caucus and was in the thick of this year's drama around the budget right and in our third segment we'll speak with john tufel who wrote the cover article for our july print edition and it's called welcome to the fear factory how the mayor the cops and the corporate media make it impossible to solve new york city's many challenges but first on this sweltering summer day when temperatures are pushing at 90 degrees we turn to the city's pools where a dearth of lifeguards has led to uh, adult lap swims and swimming classes for how to learn to swim to be uh, a cut this year it's also made in some cases for unbearably long waits to get into some of the largest public pools in the city but is the lack of lifeguards a shortage of workers or is it a case of the adams administration not being willing to pay potential lifeguards enough money to attract them joining us now to help sort help sort this out is max riblin nadler he and his team at the hellgate website have been all over this story max welcome to wbai radio Good to be here. Yes, thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, for starters, uh, can you walk us through um, what exactly which services have been uh, cut back or reduced at the city pools due to this uh, lifeguard shortage? And also, can you break down how this uh, shortage of lifeguards came about? Yeah, so it's not as if this happened uh, just in the past year. Everything goes back to before the pandemic. Over years, there had been a declining amount of lifeguards uh, at the city, um, losing hundreds of lifeguards each year from 2016, which is the most recent peak of the amount of lifeguards. So this has been kind of a long simmering issue. But obviously, the pandemic really threw a wrench into it. So in summer 2020, obviously, uh, you had serious curtailing of public services, including pools. Um, and, and by summer 2021, even with the vaccine rollout, you still didn't get a return to all programs. Uh, the two programs that were cut that people had really 
come to rely on to get their exercise, to recreate, to see other people uh, were adult lap swim. And this would be early bird and night owl. So early in the morning and then late at night, even towards sunset, uh, where adults only were allowed into the pool and able to swim. Uh, a lot of senior citizens took advantage of that, and as well as just a lot of people generally to take advantage of these majestic Olympic-sized pools. The other program that's been missing now since the pandemic was uh, free swim instruction, which is vitally important for um, young people and, and even older people across um, you know, New York City, where you don't have ready access to pools, almost certainly for the vast majority of city residents. And on top of that, these are skills that need to be employed when swimming in the ocean or in local bays, um, which are often done in difficult conditions with harsh riptides, even um, there was a really tragic incident a few weeks ago that was in Jamaica Bay because of a collapsing sandbar. So these types of programs were really vitally important to build up um, kind of the citizenry's ability to uh, recreate safely in, in water. Right. I just want to add, uh, I, I participated in the early bird uh, swimming program in, in the mornings uh, over many years, and uh, it's just a, a, a wonderful program. It, it always felt so great to be in the pool at seven seven thirty in the morning for an hour hour and a half, and and it, these some of these pools are enormous and have so many other people participating. And occasionally, you know, go do the evening uh, program, and they even you know added little things like if you if you swam twenty five miles over the course of a season, you got a you know a official early bird t-shirt but the main thing was is that so many people were swimming and i i mean i love that program and uh um yeah i just want to add that maybe you know the people in the adams administration never use the public pools but mm -hmm. certainly miss this well i definitely talked for one of my first stories on this subject talking with people when it was kind of hinted that it wouldn't be coming back this year talking with people who fully expected it too and who like you took advantage of it and really this kind of key to the city that this free access gave you. One woman described it as, you know, you felt like a queen where basically you were able to swim with this like in this beautiful pristine pools at, at sunset in the city. And you think about some of these pools, um, Astoria pool, especially you've got this incredible view of the of the Hellgate um, as well as the skyline. So um, you know, to take that away from people um, is, is a real shame. And I think a lot of people are worried that it might never come back. Right. And I think a big issue there with the adult swim and then also with children not having access to free swim lessons anymore is, is creating a stronger separation among the working class and, you know, lower classes, people who cannot afford private gyms. I mean, everything is getting more expensive right now, yet most people's salaries are not. Um, so it's making that harder to access and also just straight up safety, right. For kids to know how to swim. Um, and, and John and I were talking about this earlier and he brought up a good point that that kid who's not getting the swim lessons now, hopefully won't be the same kid on the beach in Rockaway who drowns because of the shortage of lifeguards. But speaking of that shortage, um, the city has only managed to hire around 500 lifeguards out of a goal of around 1,500. So that's a third of it. And in addition to programs being cut, you all did some great reporting on the lines now. So if you can go to the pool, even if your kid's not going to get a lesson or you're not going to go for laps, getting in is difficult, right? 
Yeah, so there's two things kind of constraining when people can enter the pool. Um, it's the basic amount of lifeguards. And and let's be really honest here. Being a lifeguard at a city pool is really difficult. You're not just, you know, twirling the whistle, especially with the cutting of these uh, instruction periods, right? Because you have people who are less equipped to swim. Um, you've got a lot of young people who are kind of, you know, horsing around. So the lifeguards have a really difficult job. One way they've been dealing with the shortage is by cutting the capacity of the pools in half saying, okay, we could only watch one side of the pools um, because we only have half the lifeguards. So that ultimately leads to longer lines. Out in Bed-Stuy last week, um, my colleague Kate Mooney reported a story where people were waiting for hours for their chance to enter, and ultimately they did it in shifts. On top of that, for the pools to open, there also needs to be, by city mandate, an NYPD presence. Um, and oftentimes the NYPD, at least as Kate found last week, we're not showing up on time. And that's a huge, you know, uh, bottleneck, right? Because if they show up half an hour late, those shifts start half an hour late. So if the evening shift starts at four, but people don't get in until 4.30, then, you know, basically it's lights out at seven. So really people are having their time in the water constrained. And really, it's really vitally important, especially on a day like today, to cool off when you're feeling hot and standing on a line certainly doesn't help. Right. And can you talk about how some of these pools came about? Some of these, as you said, majestic pools like the one out by Hellgate and Astoria, Hamilton Fish, the one in Sunset Park and some others that date back to the 1930s. Yeah, these are, you know, um, the um, legacy of a much more expanded role of the uh, of, of public works, uh, especially under FDR and Robert Moses, who really believed in kind of these large, majestic open spaces for the public to have access to. Um, of course, you know, the the temperatures of the pool and the structures of the pool and where they were placed were, were dictated by the, um, you know, prejudices of the day. You know, um, some of them that got mm-hmm. heating were in the uh, wealthier areas where ones that were kept cool were kept cool um, because Robert Moses believed that it would keep um, black and Latino people out of those spaces. So, you know, these are don't, you know, these reflect the ideas and the prejudices of the day, but still they did allow a large amount of regular people to show up and, and get cool during hot summer months. I mean, the role they play because they are only open July and August pretty much when school is out of session is to make sure that kids, especially during the day, have a place to go and cool off and also just learn a skill that they wouldn't otherwise. Right. And, and a lot of the shortage is coming from lack of pay, right? Talk about how much um, the city lifeguards make and compare it to maybe what other cities or other locales have done to um, thwart this problem, which is apparently a national problem of lifeguard shortages. Right. It's, it's referred to the national lifeguard shortage. But, you know, as we've seen in other industries, it's it's basically the national refuse to pay more. Uh, exactly. Yes. Um, in New York City, the, the pay hadn't increased going into this. And, and the Parks Department and the Mayor, uh, Adams administration were well aware there was going to be a shortage pretty early on. Um, and the, the pay for city lifeguards was $16 an hour, which is really a take home of around $800 a week. Um, you know, add taxes to that. Not a lot of money to take home to sit in the sun all day uh, with this pretty difficult job. Uh, originally, 
people um, proposed increasing pay for um, lifeguards, but Mayor Adams said that they should do it because they want to, that this is a calling as opposed to something that people should do for pay. Um, funny thing happens, though, when you raise the wages. So the state raised the wages uh, for state pools, which include places like, you know, um, Riverbank State Park and uh, Jones Beach, state beaches as well. They raised it to $21 an hour and even added a signing bonus, which had the perverse effect of actually making the shortage in New York City all that much worse, because obviously lifeguards who are available would then go and take a better uh, paying job. On top of that, strangely enough, the Adams administration began enforcing a waiver, um, this old rule that basically said, um, you know, you can't double dip as um, public servants. So if you're an EMS worker, you can't become a lifeguard. Um, but there was always a little waiver given to allow people who had EMS training to become lifeguards because that's a useful skill um, and double dip in case there's a shortage. But the Adams administration uh, didn't apply that waiver originally, and that helped the numbers down as well. Uh, they started issuing those waivers just recently. And actually, you had mentioned that there was only 500 lifeguards after changes, including raising the wages to now $19.46 and, and including a retention bonus at the end of the summer, now they're up to, I believe, as of last week, um, around 778 lifeguards. But that is still a thousand lifeguards short and half of what they had pre-pandemic. Um, so there's been some changes at the city level to try to induce people to come back. Um, they've even changed some of the requirements for the test. Um, to open up these mini pools that they have for younger children, um, which will relieve some of the stress on the larger pools. So there's mini pools. There's one in uh, Tompkins Square Park that you could find. There's one um, out. There's there's one in NYCHA housing on 14th Street. They're all over the place. They're kind of pocket pools. Uh, those are being reopened this week and uh, to allow for less congestion at the larger public pools. Right. And we have to go here in one minute. But real quickly, can you just fill us in on uh, where, where things stand with uh, Eric Adams' uh, campaign promise to spend uh, 1% of the budget on the on the Parks Department? I understand he's falling well short of that. Yeah, you might get into this more with the council member a little bit later in the show. Um, but, yeah, he exactly. hasn't built that. Um, this is a good segue. Uh, someone who's been very on top of this lifeguard issue has been uh, the city council member in charge of parks, uh, Shaker Krishnan, who's been trying to address this issue and get funding parity. But this all falls under the parks umbrella, um, which honestly is is hurting as of this last uh, budget. And, um, you know, this summer is unfortunately kind of a wash. And we'll have to see what moves they make under this new budget heading into next summer season, because this isn't going to solve itself. Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Max Rivlin, uh, uh, Nadler from uh, Hellgate uh, website, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. So we'll be back after a short break, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with Council Member, City Council Member Shahana Hanif, who was right in the thick of all the uh, drama and discussions around the city budget. We'll hear more about that when we come back. Is not. The multicolored mirror 
nails on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime A soap impression of his wife which he ate and donated to the National Trust That was Happiness is a Warm Gun by the Beatles. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM, your peace and justice community radio station. I'm uh, your host, John Tarleton, also here with my co-host, Amma Gagarian. And uh, in this second segment, we're going to uh, talk more about the, the city budget that was agreed to last month and uh, the, its uh, impact it's going to have uh, on the city in various uh, forms we Heard a little bit about uh, what's going on with the the city pools and parks uh, with our first uh, guest, uh, Max uh, um, uh, Ribble and Nadler, and uh, our our next guest, uh, City Council Member Shahana Hanif. Uh, she was uh, elected last year to her first term. She represents District Thirty Nine in Brooklyn, uh, covers Park Slope, and uh, in Kensington. First Muslim woman to ever be elected to City Council. She's also the co-chair of the city council's progressive caucus. Shahana, welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much. So uh, there's a a lot to talk about. (laughs) We're talking about a $101 billion budget uh, deal that was reached uh, uh, last month, and and there's been a lot of controversy around it. Um, So uh, for for starters, uh, can you lead us through, uh, just without going too deep into the weeds, into the process for uh, how this uh, budget was uh, hammered out and uh, also why you all concluded the the whole budget season more than two weeks before for the deadline, because there's been a lot of concerns that have been raised since the, the budget deal uh, was finalized and approved. Yeah, absolutely. It is tough to talk about this without going into the weeds, but I will be trying my best to give well, in a honor synopsis. of the parts department, we'll go into the weeds <laughs> a little bit, but not, not, not too much. What I'll share first is to just set the tone here around where I stand in all of these conversations about the budget. I am not on the budget negotiating team. That is the speaker's cabinet of selected kind of VIP council members who help out with the budget negotiations. And I'm not part of an even smaller VIP cohort of leadership. Mm -hmm. So that makes me an outsider in these conversations. And I came into this with some priorities around the committee I chair, which is immigration. And uh, one of the larger campaigns that I organized around was with council member Tiffany Caban to bring in $10 million for childcare for undocumented families. So I just wanted to kind of set the tone in terms of where I am in all of this and uh, what individual members are tasked with in terms of pushing our own priorities Mm -hmm. uh, for the budget. 
the process begins with the release of a preliminary budget by the mayor and then the council responds. And in that response, we laid out uh, priorities across housing, parks, immigration, all of it. And, uh, and then it's a back and forth, which then results in this executive budget. But because I'm on the outside, what I came into was a date for the handshake and a presentation wherein myself and all of the other non-BNT leadership council members received uh, a presentation that Friday before the Monday vote. Yeah, June now, we're 10th. not given Fr- the, right. June we're not given a timeline as to when the vote was going to happen, when we were re- going to receive this presentation. We get the presentation now, trying to digest it, ask questions at the same time. That night is when Chalkbeat released uh, a part of the presentation we did not receive, which is the education cuts uh, amounting to $215 million, which was listed there. So I hope this outlines a sort of opaqueness and lack of transparency on the inside. Um, and the inability to organize as a result of this environment that I'm both acclimating to and trying to understand what the political conditions are as I get to know this speaker and her leadership style and her team. And as I get to know this mayor and the administration in terms of how they're going to respond to any organizing or back or pushing back. Uh, Amba, I think you're muted. I was muted. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you, Shahana, for joining us. So, um, and you are also the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, of which the majority of city council actually claims membership. Could you talk a little bit of the role of that caucus in the budget process and why you all maybe did not thwart this until you got some more pro-people, pro-public program terms, um, and also just how, how one does become a member of that caucus? I'll begin with how one becomes a member of that caucus as outlined by our bylaws. Uh, When myself and then council member Lincoln Ressler, who's co-chair and then our vice co-chairs, council members, Jen Gutierrez and Carmen De La Rosa, um, the uh, bylaws basically say that two thirds of the body need to approve incoming members. And so as the turnover took place, um, anybody who wanted to be a member basically just got approved. There isn't a kind of eligibility criteria, which we want to put forth. Um, But if we stick to the bylaws, amendments that get made to the bylaws also need to get approved by two thirds of the body. Now, the challenges that we're facing include having BNT, our budget negotiating team colleagues in the caucus and also leadership minus the Republican colleagues of ours. So literally, and the speaker, of course, the speaker, her leadership, BNT members are all in the caucus, which make it really difficult (laughs) 
<laughs> to uh, get anything done. <laughs> um, but we began very hopeful because uh, the mayor had been violently sweeping unhoused folks across Brooklyn, across the city, and we put together a letter and uh, the the caucus signed on and we, you know, received pushback from the administration, but we carried forward because this was um, on the speaker's agenda around housing, guaranteed housing, supportive housing, and uh, and then began a process of identifying what our budget priorities are. And Councilmember Jen Gutierrez leads our budget working group. And then we're in the phase where we're about to begin our policy uh, working group uh, to prioritize what legislation we want to champion that is going to be led by Councilmember Carmen De La Rosa. But as, as we were moving this, we were doing so without a director. We then hired uh, Emily Mayer, who comes from If Not Now, um, uh, and, and received a lot of pushback, including from members of the caucus calling her anti-Semitic and going to reporters. And so we've been sort of putting out fires while also trying to determine what is the function of this caucus, wherein we've got uh, this hostile formation of people who are close to the speaker and not necessarily rooted in the progressive future we want for the city or constantly push back because the caucus had attempted to put together a letter in response to the budget cuts, the education budget cuts and two iterations that were not yet sent to the administration had been leaked to the administration by someone in the caucus. And so it's been a deeply challenging space to uh, organize in, and to determine, well, how do we move forward uh, with these um, forces in, in the caucus? And so right now, uh, we're invested in strategizing to get to a place where the caucus can function. Um, but are there, are there people you want to expel stuck. from the caucus? I would say hell yeah. I think well, name <laughs> I names speak for the entire I can't speak for the entire caucus, but it will continue to be challenging if uh the speaker, BNT colleagues, and people who are in leadership are in the caucus. None of the folks who are in leadership on the caucus, this is myself, Lincoln, Carmen, Jen, uh-huh. are in any of those formations within the speaker's uh cabinet so, so is, is it fair to say that you felt like that that the some of the leading you know the, the speaker's closest allies were essentially undermining the progressive caucus and and leadership that you and lincoln and others were trying to provide absolutely that, yeah absolutely i mean there's a deep fear of the mayor and a, a a want a desire on the on the part of city council, right? Mm-hmm. And not every member. I'm not saying this is every member, but mm-hmm. when a district hasn't received funding for years, and there's a commitment coming in from these political 
forces our bureaucrats, it is tough to stand your ground and say, hey, like, I'm going to, you know, fight with y'all. I'm going to be invested in the project to hold the mayor accountable. That is what the caucus's function is. Now, if you don't believe in that, it's okay to exit the caucus. So those are conversations that are going to be tough, that are likely going to, you know, put us in a conflicting position. And, and so we're working through a process that will hopefully be thoughtful and, um, and not one that pits us against our colleagues because we still have to work with our colleagues as we push forward legislation, um, the upcoming budget, if we want to be more organized. So right now, the caucus is in this sort of precarious position. It's, right. It's, it's tough. It, it sounds kind of more like a, a collection of individuals trying to cohere a, a group uh, identity. Um, but uh, so when, when the deal finally went down on June 13th, um, uh, the vote uh, for, and again, for people, the, the city council has 51 members, 44 Democrats, seven uh, Republicans. Uh, the final vote was 44 to six. Uh, and um, I, uh, Sandy Nurse, Charles Barron, Christian Richardson Jordan, Tiffany uh, Caban, Alexa Aviles, and Chiose were the were the six who voted against it. You you did not vote against this budget, which uh, can you talk can you talk about that afterwards? You released a, a I think an email or a, a, a tweet, uh, you know, that said you had complicated feelings about what had happened now that we're kind of a month out about it from that. What are your feelings about your complicated feelings and everything? <laughs> I am still, I am still, I mean, I gotta feeling, say, I think a lot of people were disappointed. I mean, I think a lot of, of people I was were not thinking that, like, yeah. that, that you or some of the other uh, progressive uh, leaders on the city council were going to fall in line with uh, an Eric Adams budget. You're absolutely right. And I've learned a lot from this budget process and also decisions or choices that are on the table, yes and a no, are two very shitty choices. Apologize. Um, so Pat, uh, following the budget vote, I, uh, or leading up to the budget vote or why I came to a yes um, was really defined by my conversations with schools. I mean, I learned from Chalkbeat that it's that Chalkbeat is not the city council. It's not the speaker. I learned from an outside entity that there were cuts folded into this budget that was not given to us in a presentation. And so that weekend I took it upon myself with a couple of other colleagues to push our speaker um, to, to ensure that um, the cuts needed to be restored or that right now the, uh, that she needed to be pressuring the mayor because that's the line of communication here um, to get to the bottom of what happened here, why there's a cut, and the egregious nature and the repercussions of these cuts to every single school 
um, in our city. And, and then by the end of that weekend, received a commitment that the city council is invested in filling the gaps of this budget. And at the same time, after checking in with all of our schools in, in the 39th district, um, I believe that having a seat at the theoretical negotiating table post-budget, given the political conditions that are surrounding me, would help to restore this funding. That I would be able to, um, to, to play a role here, an active role here, in fighting for these uh, dollars that um, cannot, in this moment in time, or really in any moment in time, um, be cut from our schools and from education. Um, and, and the, the no position, if I had voted no, my impression was that I would be denied this, this seat at the negotiating table. I wanted to put myself in the best possible opportunity to fight for every single school in my district. Um, and there's been a table, but you know, days after having met with the speaker, having then met with the chancellor and his team, um, I have only experienced sharper dead ends on the inside. And it's been deeply disheartening. So uh, I voted yes. I am living with this deep disappointment, but also have been proactive about meeting with our schools, our convening our principals, um, chatting with cohorts or smaller cohorts of um, parent leaders, educators, uh, to, to build out an organizing strategy for my district because this is, there's this short term, uh, fight to restore the dollars that are deserved now. And then there's this larger fight to hold the mayor accountable because he's continuing to divest from our schools annually. The federal dollars are being slashed annually. And right now, our attention needs to be on this mayor who is um, uh, privatizing, who is invested in privatizing uh, education in the city. So we're doing a lot of work as an office um, to uh, build more political education and awareness around the education front here, while also working closely with uh, education equity advocates across the city, um, namely under the People's Plan Alliance, mm -hmm. and also using the Progressive Caucus to organize also uh, the Bowman letter, the uh, Rep Bowman put out a letter, a sign-on letter um, yeah. that was supported by myself and Comptroller Lander. So I'm trying to use every tool I have, um, understanding the hostility of this body um, to push forward um, uh, a strategy. Right. Yeah, no, it's, ob it's obviously challenging uh, how to uh, play both an inside and an outside role with a, a, a hostile uh, mayor. And, uh, of course, the city, you know, uh, ma made its uh, bed when we chose Eric Adams to be our next mayor. Um, Unfortunately. <laughs> yep. We have to wait three years to revisit that one. But uh, uh, we, we have to uh, go here. But uh, Shahana Hanif, city council member for District 39 in Brooklyn, I, I really appreciate you joining us today and, and, and taking these questions. And, you know, again, um, you know, like I said, there's uh, some disappointment around this, but we appreciate you being a stand up uh, rep and coming, you know, coming forward and, 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 and sharing what you have to share about this whole process. 
Thank you. I appreciate being in conversation. Great. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow this story because with everything that's going to happen in the schools in the, in the coming year. But once again, uh, Shahana Neef, City Council Member, District 39, Brooklyn, co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. Thank you for joining us on WBAI Radio. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And we'll come back after a short break with our final guest, uh, John Tufel. He wrote the cover article for this month's Independent called The Fear Factory. How and It looks at how uh, the mayor, the media, and the NYPD really uh, uh, control the, the political discourse in this city and, and shape our political imagination uh, uh, largely to our detriment. He's uh, going to share some more of his analysis with us. to the Independent News Hour, and I am Ambigar Garian, joined by my co-host, John Tarleton. Thank you for joining us on WBAI 99.5 and streaming on WBAI.org. We are very excited to hop into our next segment, but first I'll let you know that you just heard Adwala, the theme by the Art Ensemble of Chicago, um, a legendary ensemble. Um, and before we go to our third segment where we will speak with um, the author, John Tufel, of our very interesting cover piece about Eric Adams um, and his crime mongering, we do need to let you know that we need some love. We need some gifts. If you are feeling... Yeah, not for ourselves, but for this radio station. Yes. Yes. If you are feeling burdened by some change that might be weighing down your pockets, WBAI could could help you out and take that burden off of you because, as always, we need some money to pay our rents so that you can keep listening to this amazing bastion of independent media that shines not only around the five boroughs, but into Jersey and Long Island. And if you could unburden yourself with some of that change, please call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go, on, go online to give the number two WBAI.org. That's give the number two WBAI.org and uh, show us a yeah, little WBAI. Yeah, again, that number is uh, 212-209-2950. You can also go online uh, with your with your plastic at uh, uh, give number two WBAI.org. You can make a one-time contribution. You can also sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. You get all sorts of uh, awesome uh, benefits with that. And uh, even more than uh, particular benefits you'll get, you'll get, you'll have the, the knowledge, you'll have the, 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 the good karma 
of knowing that you're helping keep this radio station on the air 24 hours a day, seven days a week, bringing you uh, progressive political and, and current affairs coverage and news coverage, and also all of the, the great uh, music and cultural programming uh, that you get on WBAI. And uh, again, we don't have any big corporate sponsors or billionaires uh, paying our bills. It's you, the listener, that keeps this station going at 212-209-2950. And also, I know you, you probably you hear these appeals and you think, oh, WBI is you know, always in need, but like, we have to pay uh, the rent. We, we have a, a, a antenna and transmitter at four times square, uh, pay $17,000 a month in rent on. We need to get caught up on that. And we need to get uh, caught up on our rent at our uh, offices and studios in Brooklyn at uh, 388 Atlantic Avenue. Um, and the thing is, is WBAI and the other Pacifica stations are going to be eligible for Corporation for Public Broadcasting funds starting next year. Uh, there were problems at the Pacifica National Office a few years ago with record keeping, and they lost that that uh, revenue to the detriment of WBAI and the other stations, but uh, a lot of uh, activists within the Pacifica network work really hard to get that back on track. And finally uh, it, it's everything's on, um, uh, you know, back in sync again with CPB and those funds will start flowing next year, but we got to get through this year. We got to keep on paying the rent at four times square and, uh, you know, to keep this station on the air, you know, uh, the, the cavalry is on the way, so to speak with the CPB money, but, we got to get through 2022 first. And please remember the legacy that we're keeping alive. I mean, you know, I'm in my 20s when I first told my father, who's in his 50s and was in the city for the most of his, you know, young life that I was working for BAI. He was like, wow, that's incredible. You know, I played for BAI with members of the Sun Ra Orchestra back in 85 in that office. Like, this is a legacy not only of incredible independent news, music, opening up the doors to sounds that others wouldn't. So please remember, this is not a new station this is a long legacy of independent media independent music and independent sound in new york and uh we need to keep it going right on and one one more time that number 212-209-2950 and online at give number two wbai.org thank you so much to everybody who uh, can give this evening and if you you can't do it right this moment because you're so riveted to this show please make sure and do uh, when we go off the air in about 10 minutes at uh, 212-209-2950 well now we're going to uh, move to our, our our third and final guest um is uh john uh tufel uh, uh john is the uh, uh, author of a monthly column for the independent called this month in eric adams uh, he's worked in the past as a um, investigator at the civilian complaint review board he's a independent litigator who's won some important uh, cases around freedom of information, uh, forcing NYPD to divulge uh, info that it wouldn't otherwise want to share with the public. And he's um, a freelance writer as well. And he's been uh, contributing this wonderful monthly column uh, that has really delved into uh, some of the uh, deeper significance and of various actions of the Adams administration. And this month he wrote the cover story uh, for our print edition 
uh, called Welcome to the Fear Factory, How the Mayor, the Cops, and the Corporate Media Make It Impossible to Solve NYC's Many Challenges. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, John. Good to be here. Uh, right. So uh, uh, first, uh, can, uh, can you tell us about the inspiration to uh, start uh, writing about the mayor in, in, in your uh, both uh, uh, dire and, and hilarious and ex- extremely attentive manner? <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I thought that Eric Adams, once it became clear that he was running for mayor, I thought that he would win. He is the type of politician who historically in recent history in New York uh, tends to rise to the top. And um, I thought he was going to be a disaster. I mean, and I wasn't unique in thinking this, obviously, um, but I suspected he would be even worse than de Blasio. And we remember how that all turned out. And uh, I wanted to kind of figure out what his deal is, because Eric Adams obviously is um, he's not just sort of this politically repugnant person. He's also just a generally very odd man. Um, He is like fascinating in the same way that Donald Trump is fascinating. He has these uh, quirks of personality. Um, He tends to be very uh, loose with his speech. Uh, He tends to go off topic and kind of just say whatever comes in his head. And he's fascinating to observe. And, uh, you know, before he came to power, I was also um, very involved, as a lot of New Yorkers are, in the movement to defund, reform, abolish, whatever you want to, whatever word you want to use, the police in New York. And, you know, Adams is a former police officer. So I thought nothing good could come of that, of putting a former uh, NYPD officer in charge of our city. So, um, yeah, I, I think I wrote that that initial column um, going through his first wild month where every other day there seemed to be some new crazy story about this man. And um, we, you know, uh, went for, we, it went from there. And uh, I've been writing now about him every month for the last, uh, I guess, seven or eight months. Right, um, we've been uh, carrying your columns on independent.org, our, our website, and then you were able to sort of synthesize some of what you had written before and, and build off of it for this uh, cover story in our, in our print edition. But uh, can you talk a little bit, I mean, about obviously one of the central themes of the Ad- Adams administration, which is uh, really the emphasis on, on crime and, uh, and fear mongering around crime and um, why that's been both incredibly effective for him, but is also now turning into a, a double-edged sword that he maybe doesn't quite know uh, how to handle. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think I think whether you're a fan of Eric Adams or a detractor of Eric Adams, you would agree that he came to power largely because of this uh, this perceived rise in crime in New York City Uh, that he was he sold himself as the only person who can solve this uh, nearly intractable issue. He is the former police officer. He is not some soft leftist. He's not even a liberal. He is willing to be tough on crime. And that is how he came to power. I mean, that's how he sold himself. And to do that, he had the help of the New York City media infrastructure, which, um, you know, the New York Post is the most obvious one, but also our local news media uh, in creating this sort of culture of fear that exists in New York City, where it seems as though every time 
you turn around and read a headline or watch a news story on your local news, it's about some murder happening. Or if there's no murder that day, they run a story about a robbery or something of that nature. And I mean, this is how Eric Adams came to power. And he came to power in opposition to the defund the police movement to saying he will be the one who funds the police. And uh, he has now found out, uh, you know, seven months into his mayorality, he has found out that it is not so easy to unflip that switch. Essentially, he has spent the past year and change flipping the fear switch in New Yorkers. And I think we see this not only in polls. I mean, the Siena poll that came out a couple of weeks ago said 70% of New Yorkers are uh, are fearful, are scared of crime in their life. And, uh, I, you know, I think a lot of us can even see it in our own lives. Maybe we know people. I mean, I know people, like, you know, good, smart people who will say, I am scared to take the subway at night nowadays. Um, so, I mean, he came to power on that and he's realizing that now it's hard to unflip that switch, that he cannot just get people to stop being scared, even though it is now hurting his poll numbers, because now there is this perception that he is powerless, that he cannot bring crime down, uh, that crime just keeps going up, up, up. Um, and there actually is a little bit of truth to that and we could talk about that, but, uh, that he's now seeing that he cannot easily solve this problem of crime because his solutions have never been actual solutions to the problem of crime. Uh, And he's sort of in a box and I don't think he knows exactly what to do about it. And now you see him kind of trying to change the subject a little bit. Right. And and I think one of the uh, fascinating things about uh, the article you you wrote for us this month is also the, the way you look at the, the intersection of Adams and the media. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about the role of the New York Post, the infamous uh, right-wing tabloid here in the city, but also the way uh, they're a really a catalyst for all the local, so much of the local television news coverage, uh, which is watched uh, uh, by, especially by older voters who play a key role in New York City politics. Yeah, absolutely. So let me give you, so I, let me give you an interesting little uh, set of statistics. So, in 2002, which I'm very focused on 2002 because it was the year I moved to New York. And at the time, New York was considered, uh, you know, the it was the heyday of the miracle of New York, that crime had gone down so, so much uh, that, you know, my parents didn't worry when I moved to the city, uh, that I could go about freely and not be scared. That year, there were 587 murders in, uh, in New York City. Last year, there were 488 murders in New York City. And last year, you'll recall, was the year that we first heard this crime narrative, that crime is rising precipitously, that we're all under fire. Now, the New York Post, the New York Post does a, a very um, convenient thing. They they put all their cover stories because the Post has some great covers. They have punny, fun little covers. So they put all their covers online. So you can go look at all of their cover stories. So I looked at... Remember, 2002, there were more murders happening than there are now by by a substantial margin. So I looked at how many cover stories were in the New York Post about crime in 2002 in the month of May. There were three stories about crime that made the cover, and two of them were about a cop who got drunk and uh, ran someone over. 
So there was really only one story about a violent crime in New York. If you look at May of 2022, New York Post covers, you know how many of those stories were about New York crimes, New York City crimes? 15 of them. 15 of them. 15 out of 31. 15 out of 31 versus 1 out of 31 when there was more crime happening in 2002 than there is now. So the New York Post is kind of a great example of how facts can be disregarded in service of pushing this narrative. The Post is just, and as you said, I mean, the Post is just the most obvious example because they are so far right wing that they don't disguise it, you know, but the local newscasts do the exact same thing. Right. And uh, right. We're, we're down to our final uh, minute here before we're going to have to uh, uh, leave. But it, one of the things that comes to mind when you say all this is, is in the past, Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg were hailed for making New York a, a safe city, the safest big city in the country, uh, according to some. And, and the, yes, the, the murder rates were higher then than they are now when we're supposedly living in this um dire situation and obviously for anybody who is a victim of crime it, it, it it's a very traumatic experience but overall in a city of almost nine million people uh we're much safer than we were 20 years ago much less 30 or 40 years ago yes that's exactly true uh i mean crime has risen it is true that crime has risen and it's actually risen even more during the adams administration because his solution of just endlessly increasing the funding of the police we've got 15 seconds ah okay well john thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful to be here and um thanks for all your uh efforts with the independent and with this show sure well uh for everybody who's uh uh, interested, I encourage you to uh, pick up a copy of The Independent or find us online at independent.org and uh, see John's uh, cover story there as well. I uh, want to thank our board operator, Reggie uh, Johnson, also uh, Amber Gagarian, the co-host. And uh, we'll be back same time next week. Uh, and the uh, song we're leaving here with is Don't Lie, a new release from Ty Siegel. 